Hi, you're listening to The Ready Room, the Treks and Sci-Fi Microcast. I'm Kenny, and I play Captain Nathan Quinn. As you can hear, I am solo today. Um, as you all know, life does get in the way once in a while, and Jen and Rick are both really busy, and it's also the Easter holiday when I'm recording this, and both of them are very busy. But we all, three of us, Jen, Rick, and myself, will be back next week for a regular The Ready Room. Uh, the team is back again, so um, we're really looking forward to getting back together and getting back on schedule. So for this Ready Room, it's actually just going to be jam-packed full of post-readings. I think we have about an hour and 20 minutes worth of post-readings, and this should pretty much get us up to date via a few that just recently got posted but um this is just a way for us to catch up and then next week we will come back with our regular scheduled uh ready room podcast so sit back and enjoy this week's the ready room dr peterson slowly finished packing his luggage only having realized recently the heavy burden he carried regarding his past he becomes so blinded by hate for the borg that it had started to affect his life in far-reaching ways. Casey could not believe he had carried the pain of the loss of his family for so long and had come to realize that he could not run from his personal pain any longer. He decided that after some much-needed rest, he would recommit himself to his future and stop dwelling on the past as he zipped up his luggage. Mayella called out to her husband, "'Are you almost ready, dear?' "'Almost,' he responded." There's just one more thing I have to do. Casey went over to his computer terminal and sent Marg on a message requesting a counseling session for when he and his wife returned from shore leave. He smiled as he thought to himself, Today is the beginning of the rest of my life, as he walked out of his quarters arm in arm with his wife. As the commander's office doors hissed shut behind him, Galdar sighed. The interview was finished and he'd received Commander Radrek's blessing on his transfer application. It had actually been easier than he'd expected, since with his logic rejected, the Vulcan had not resorted to any sort of emotional appeal in order to retain the young Ferengi. Rather, the time had been spent discussing the differences in the service experiences to be had on a starship over those of a starbase. At one point, Galda would almost have described the Commander's tones as wistful, as he'd recounted some of his service aboard various vessels over the many years of his career. In all, the experience had been almost pleasant for Galdar, a fact which surprised him. He obviously didn't know the commander well, but he'd expected much more of a confrontation. As he headed for the turbo lift, he started to compose his transfer request in his head, but broke off abruptly as he'd realized what he had ought to do first. Deck 6, Accommodation Area he called as the lift doors closed. The Arabella was made from an old ship, young man. The remains of the USS Lemurias was recycled in making this ship. Michael shifted slightly away from the old man who continued to speak. Ah, the Lemurias. <laughs> well, those poor souls. What, uh, what happened? Asked Michael. The old man looked at him from the corner of his eye. Ah, containment leak or something like that exploded near the core. <laughs> Before anyone knew about it, a wind so powerful flew through the ship like the devil's own whistle. Michael looked around and then back at the old man. Did uh, no one survive? 
No one. <laughs> they felt the pain, the agony. The bodies are ripped apart one by one. They, uh... They say you can hear the screams on part of your ship. <laughs> it's cursed, young man. Cursed! Michael stood up. I, uh, I think I've heard enough of this nonsense. You'll see, young man. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> Leaving the cackling old caretaker, Michael headed up to meet some of the other crew. Looking behind him, he didn't notice one of the commanders in his way and bumped straight into him. Easy, Anderson. Are you in a rush? Sorry, uh, sorry, sir. I was just wondering where that old man had gone. The commander looked down at him. The old man? Is he a guest? Michael looked up at the commander. No, he's a caretaker here. He was sitting on an old iron bench. The commander looked over at a plastic glass seating area. Ensign, there is no iron bench, and the last caretaker who was old died ten years ago. Michael looked shocked and began to slur his words. But but he mentioned the USS Lemures. He said the Lemures was destroyed. The commander smiled. Lemures? is Latin for ghosts, Ensign. He patted him on the shoulder and walked away, leaving Michael standing there with his mouth open. Like a heart racing from exertion, Eric felt the pulse of the EPS conduits through his link to the Arabella. With his mind connected to the ship, he could feel and caress that data that flowed through the information link. Every damaged system tingled like an unhealed wound, and the workers scurrying about the vessel served well as her immune system. He was a part of this ship and she a part of him. Although she wasn't the Aurora, he had been there for her conception and the pangs of her birth. He knew how the ship felt when she was whole and now she was getting closer. Eric submerged his consciousness deeper within the ship, becoming one with the programs within her computer core. Organic intuition danced with sensors and diagnostic software to paint a picture of the vessel's health in his mind's eye. You'll be whole soon. He thought to the ship as his mind brushed against the new reclassified secondary warp core section where the SCE finalized their work. Galdar pressed the chime on the door of Nicholas Andrews' quarters. He'd known the lieutenant almost from the day he had arrived aboard Starbase 416, and if there was anyone he thought of as a friend, it was Nick. Their relationship was still more duty-based than social, but it was as close to friendship as he'd come since in entering Starfleet, and he valued it on that basis. He pressed the chime again, a little surprised to have received no response. Nick and he ran different shifts, but they usually managed to sync up for a chat at about this time before Nick went back out. He could have called the lieutenant on the comm system, but he always felt that to be a somewhat inappropriate approach for matters such as this. Face-to-face -face was always a Ferengi preference. Still, he'd fall back on his comm badge if he didn't get an answer soon. Cutting off the thought, the door opened in front of him. Yeah? Nick looked a little haggard as he stood in the doorway, an impression reinforced by the somewhat untidy state of his quarters. He wasn't the neatest person at the best of times, so Galdo was pleased that he had never had to share quarters. But this looked a little unnatural even for him. Have you got a minute? I've made a decision, and I need to tell you about it. The linseed oil slowly ran down the delicate carved willow. The rag looked unkempt, but he'd been a trusty servant to the wood for many years. 
Working in slow, gentle circles, the rag smoothed the oil into the willow, and as the work continued, the wood began to shine. A good twenty minutes went by until the whole cricket bat was finished. Joseph held it up and looked down the flat surface. A gentle curve on the edges made the bat look elegant. Flipping it over to the other side, the light raised triangular carving looked as sharp as a captain's trouser crease. Pulling his yellow and gold Australian cricket shirt on, he paused to look at himself in the mirror. Shame one would have been proud. His backpack, slightly battered and worn, carried several leather cricket balls, two sets of wickets with bales, and a six-pack of iced-cased beer. Putting his bat under his arm, he left his quarters and headed to the docking bay, so he could get some fresh food for his trip. It didn't take long to get onto the station deck, and he didn't want to be here long. He wanted the smell of the planet below, and to be able to play some of his favourite game. Kitan sighed, pausing to collect his thoughts, then continued. My mother warned me that I was courting trouble, and I was too stubborn to listen, but my stubbornness paled in comparison to Kilara's. She was very strong-willed, even by Klingon standards. The more her mother tried to keep us apart, the more determined she became to be with me. In the end, she sought to formally challenge her mother's desires by involving the family Jin Tok. This is no small matter. Katan took a sip of water before continuing. The Jean Tok is a family advisor employed by many of the great houses. In a way, he is the protector of the family honor. The Jean Tok settles disputes within a household before they can escalate to a point bringing down the houses. You have to understand. With her mother disapproving of our relationship, Kilara stood to lose her family name if she continued to pursue it. She felt the Jintak would decide in her favor, forcing her mother to yield. She was wrong. The Jintak decided that her mother was right, and that the honorable thing for Kilara to do was to make her personal concerns secondary to the needs of her house. She had no choice but to submit. It was weeks later before I heard from her again. Her calm message was frantic and disjointed, and when I heard the fervor in her voice, I knew that things would not end well. She said that if I truly loved her, I would get my badleth and meet her at the Joape Swamp that evening. Together, we would embrace our destiny as one. My blood froze when I heard this. The swamps are home to the most ferocious predator on Escave, a foul abomination that is one of the few non-sentient creatures in the universe that kills not for food or defense, but at a sheer sadistic joy. The swamps are often littered with the decomposing remains of the creatures it has killed and left to rot. Catan gave an involuntary shudder, and his voice dropped to a whisper. And it cannot be killed. Disruptors, blades, poisons. They only feed its rage. To stand against it is suicide. After leaving a note for my family, I raced after her. My only desire was to convince her that I was not worthy. I felt that if I could somehow turn her against me, she would abandon her death wish. When I got to the swamp, she had already engaged the beast. It was horrible. The sight of its malformed, filth-slimed hide still haunts my dreams. 
as does the rotten corpse smell. It's a horrible scream, a twisted, insanely gleeful keening. I cannot describe it. If evil has a sound, then I surely heard it that night. I've never been so afraid as I was then. But the sight of her there, hip high in the muck, struggling against that foul thing. It's like my body fought a battle with my mind and my mind lost. Before I knew it, I was there with her. <laughs> For an insane moment, amid the slashing and hacking, I had the gall to think that I might even overcome the beast. I must have been blinded by my overconfidence because the next thing I saw was one of its blackened, rotting claws slashing towards my face. After that, everything is a nightmarish blur. I remember being thrown into the firmer mud surrounding the swamp, and I remember Gilara's screams. Catan's vision blurred. He touched his face to discover tears streaming down his cheeks. He shook his head and took a long, hitched breath. With a Herculean effort, he managed to reassert a modicum of control over himself. I awoke later in my own bed. His hands traced the scar on his face. And I had this. My mother and brother said that they had found my note and followed my trail. They found me unconscious at the swamp and managed to distract the beast long enough to drag me to safety. They found no trace of Kilara. Ryla was speechless. She didn't know much about Klingon culture, but she suspected that words of sympathy would not offer him much comfort. But it wasn't in her nature to ignore him. The trill instinctively reached for his hand. Catan smiled appreciatively at Ryla's gesture. Her touch was like a soothing balm on an old wound, and he felt as though a weight had been lifted from his shoulders. Without thinking, he laid a hand atop of hers. Looking into her gentle eyes, he felt something inside him melting, and was overcome by a desperate need to know everything he could about her. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, but I did not mean to monopolize the conversation. I've been wondering, what made you decide to join Starfleet? Ryla instantly felt a flitting of her heart, followed by a surge of heat that colored her cheeks. She smiled at Catan and looked down at the hand he had moved to cover her own. Despite the voice of protest echoing within her, she slowly retracted her hand from his. Friends first, she told her inner dissenter. Noting the doctor's discomfort, he mentally chided himself. She's been through a lot. Slow down. He folded his hands before him and found himself getting lost in her eyes. Such beautiful eyes. Uh, well, I... I... I wanted to venture. She paused briefly, struggling to pull herself from the gravity of his gaze. The Trill was surprised at how anxious she felt. It was an alien sensation, something she'd never experienced while joined to Dread. Ryla took a sip of water and placed her hands on her lap. I come from a long line of physicians, but the Amaran family typically stays close to home. I guess you could say I'm the exception to the rule. She glanced up to recall a memory. My sisters used to insist that I was adopted by freighter pilots. As soon as I had the ability to do so, I ran a DNA test to verify their claims. In fact, I conducted three of them just to make sure. She laughed. 
Each result was conclusive. They'd been teasing their little sister for years, and I believed every word. Ryla returned her gaze to Catan. I wanted adventure, she repeated pensively as she absently moved her fingers to a small pocket in her dress. The trio paused a moment as she warily considered her next words. After a short gap in the conversation, she continued, I should have thanked you for giving me this. Ryla presented him with a small stone talisman, which now rested in the palm of her hand. It's helped me through some very challenging times. I translated the runes. It's a healing prayer. I don't go anywhere without it. Catan felt his heart quicken, pleasantly surprised by the sight of the talisman. The fact that she still carried it made him feel a fleeting yet comforting sense of closeness to her. I wanted to apologize for the way I spoke to you the day you gave this to me. I shouldn't have been so inconsiderate. I wasn't myself. He smiled warmly and replied, You have nothing to apologize for. The last few months have been trying for everyone. So much loss and death. I'm just grateful for the chance to spend time with you now. Catan's attention was drawn to the bar at the rear of the restaurant. There, among the drinking patrons, he thought he caught a glimpse of a familiar face, the drunken Klingon from earlier that day. He silently cursed to himself. Every moment he got to spend with Ryla felt like a bit of treasure, and he didn't want to risk losing it through a confrontation with some drunken would-be assassin. He pushed his chair back slightly from the table. Would you like to join me for a walk? I'd hate to spend too much of our shore leave cooped up in here, and I noticed some well-maintained garden areas on the promenade. In the doorway to his quarters, Andrews nodded and stood aside, gesturing Ensign Gul'dar vaguely into the living space. He watched impassively as the Ferengi stepped over the threshold and moved to the indicated seat, almost unconsciously picking up the uniform jacket slung carelessly across the back of it. Oddly folding the clothing in his hands, Gul'dar sat. Uh, Nick, I'm uh, looking for a transfer to the Arabella, he announced with any sort of preamble. I, uh, I thought I'd let you know before I got too far into the process, and uh, uh, before you found out by other means. The rumour mill has been particularly effective recently. He grinned at this, having already relayed some of his conversation on the Arabella's Borg incident to the lieutenant. With a wide smile, his only response, Nick moved to the replicator and turned to order a drink. Tarkalian tea. As he waited, Gul'dar looked for somewhere to put the uniform in his hands. Leaning over, he placed the clothing on the small table by the desk, knocking something off the edge as he did so. Leaning further, he retrieved a comm badge from the floor. About to place it back on the table, he was surprised to see another almost hidden from view by the clothing he just put down. Who needed two comm badges? Both badges suddenly chirped, but the voice that followed came only from the device on the table. Hops to Lieutenant Andrews. Gul'dar turned to see Andrews looking in his direction, scooped up the active badge and gently threw it across the room. Here, sir, the lieutenant announced as he caught it left-handed. While Andrews was talking, Gul'dar returned his attention to the second badge, still in his hand, and tapped it experimentally. Nothing. On my way. Out. Andrew's announcement cut across his concentration and snapped him back to the present as the lieutenant moved to the mirror and started to try and arrange his hair. Looks like we'll need to table this conversation for another time, Andrew's announced. I've got to fly a ferry mission to the Argolia system. Something about warp plasma and a damaged starship. 
Guldar nodded and handed him his newly folded uniform jacket with another smile. Andrews grinned back. Hey, don't let my duty stop you tidying the place. Una James moved quietly about the decks of the Arabella like a ghost, phased and cloaked from all detection. While she had intended on returning to her ship, part of her wanted to know more about the place that her husband called home. She was a quiet observer, like most of her people, but her desire to be unobserved ended when she saw the woman that her husband said was no longer on the ship. It wasn't just that she was on the ship, it was that she also looked quite pregnant. Was Eric attempting to hide an indiscretion from her? Following the woman she knew to be Savril into the turbo lift, Una disengaged her personal cloak. Hello, Una said as she appeared from thin air. Savril's response was not one that she had expected from a Vulcan. The woman had obviously been startled, for she reflexively backed against the wall. She raised her hands cautiously to show that she was unarmed before responding. My name is Una. I'm Eric's wife. He told me you were not on the ship, but when I saw you, I decided that I needed to speak with you. The Vulcan continued to maintain a good distance from the strange woman. How did you do that? Better yet, why? Typically, when one sneaks about as you have, they are intent upon sabotage. I should call security. Security is unnecessary. I intend no harm. Had I, would I have bothered to show myself to you? She said softly and smiled to the pregnant woman. My people use masking technologies to keep us out of galactic politics. We are private people, but explorers nonetheless. I would not have bothered you, but I really wanted to meet you in person. Eric has spoken very highly of you and Arya. Savril scanned the woman's thoughts and found that she was telling the truth. She relaxed slightly as she turned to face the door. You have mistaken me for the commander. Una's brows raised in both shock and curiosity. You're not Savril. I know I've met few Vulcans, but Eric's mental picture of her is identical to you. Are you her twin? The commander has no twin. Savril was reluctant to share a vast amount of information with the stranger. We share the same name and appearance, but that is all. Deck two. You share the same name and appearance? Una asked quizzically as she looked from the woman's face to her belly before taking a deep breath. Do you also share a close connection with my husband? Una couldn't understand why the woman was being so evasive, unless there was something to hide. Savril gave her a sidelong glance. As I've said, I only share her name and appearance. She felt the woman's palpable jealousy and quirked an eyebrow. I have no connections among these people. Una nodded. So do you know Eric or Arya? As much as she would have enjoyed ending the conversation there, her curiosity refused to let it simply die. The doors opened and Savril stepped out of the lift into the corridor. She sighed at the question and turned to look at the persistent woman. I do not know your husband and the young woman is a stranger to me as well. Una's smile brightened as she followed the Savril that was not Savril into the corridor. What about Saren or Rory? I'm not trying to pry, but I think it's odd that you don't know any of the people on this ship. The Vulcan stopped once again and turned to face Una. Where I'm from, interrogations are conducted with more skill, for lack of a better term. Will you resort to torture should you fail to obtain the information you desire? Una's blank stare told Savril that the woman failed to interpret her remark as sarcasm. I'm not familiar with any of the individuals you are referring to. I am merely a passenger on this vessel. 
The only persons with whom I am somewhat acquainted are Captain Quinn and Dr. Peterson. I'm not trying to interrogate you. I wish to understand my husband's perspective and it seems that Severil, the one that's not you, might have some insights, Una said. Did you not say that your people value their privacy? Severil coolly replied. I'm sorry if I came off strongly. It wasn't my intent to offend. It seems that having a complicated marriage has impeded my manners. Perhaps we should start over, Una said politely and offered her hand. I'm Una. Severil accepted it. Unfortunately, I have had my share of spousal complications. No offense was taken. She grimaced with discomfort as she continued down the corridor. You had a spouse that was in love with another woman? Una asked quizzically and added a polite smile. What brings you to this ship with no friends or family around? That is a story which will take more time than I care to explain. She slowed to a hobble before stopping to catch her breath. Severil grimaced again and rested her hand on her belly as the infants kicked inside her womb. I have more than enough time to listen, but does your child? Una replied and allowed her eyes to drift to the pregnant woman's midsection. Severil drew a sharp breath as an acute pain raked her body. Una took her arm. Let me help you. She led the Vulcan into her quarters and helped her sit. I'm fine. The pain is past. Thank you for your help. Una moved to the replicator and ordered Aurelian tea for them both, a Vulcan beverage that she'd seen her husband drink on occasion. She handed the pregnant woman one of the cups and took a sip from the other. As much as she might want to see what insights this woman could provide her on her husband, she did not wish harm on Savril or her pregnancy. How much longer until you're due? Una asked softly, but the pain of not being able to start her own family still weighed heavily on her. I'm six weeks along, but certain unusual factors have accelerated gestation. I could go into labor any day now. Unusual factors? That's an understatement, replied Una in a tone laced with shock. Severil considered the woman a moment. She was the first person, other than Nathaniel Quinn, who had engaged her in a conversation lasting more than five minutes. She knew the woman was fishing for information on Eric James, but Savril was beginning to appreciate her company. As she took a sip of her tea, the Vulcan determined that it was safe to tell her the truth. I am from a parallel dimension. The rift I crossed affected my pregnancy. She silently measured Una's reaction before continuing. The woman you have mistaken me for has traded places with me. She crossed through the void in search of her son. He was taken by the Borg. The captain has informed me that he has not heard from her since that time. Una's surprise was apparent on her face. I was unaware of this. Eric didn't tell me where she went or why. I hope she's well. As much as I resent Eric's feelings for her, I don't wish her to come to any harm or to lose her children. Savril placed her hand on her belly and glanced up at Una. I carry the same infants. It is my desire to see Savril's children reunited with her as well. I briefly met Marin in Eric's quarters and I was very taken with the girl, replied Una. I'm glad that she has Eric to look after her. I'm sure her mother is too. He'd storm the heavens to protect someone he cares about. She couldn't be in better hands. But it does hurt just a little to watch him with her. Savril nodded. I understand. Una took a slow breath. Physicians from my world have informed me that having Eric's child is a hopeless venture. It seems that compatible partners are one in a trillion. Unfortunately, the other Savril seems to be that one. 
Of course, I haven't told him this. I know he wants a son, and I would be a fool to tell him that the other woman in his life is the only one who could provide him with that. I see. Savril was beginning to understand why Una had approached her initially. She knew her guest must have suspected that Eric was responsible for her pregnancy. The father of my own children was human. Human? Una mused and allowed sadness to creep into her voice. While your species isn't as long-lived as mine, I would not have suspected your people of mingling with such a short-lived race. It must have been hard falling for someone that would be gone all too soon. I was not a willing participant, and he died young, in part because of it, Savril interjected. Una understood the implications behind the woman's words and found herself wondering if she would not have made the same decisions. I think that perhaps I've been lonelier than I thought I would be. My vessel is a home in the stars, but it's an empty home. Anyone I've met outside of my own people quickly forget my presence, save for Eric and his extended family. I've been changed by my time with Eric, and my homeworld has not truly felt like home since I met him. Enough about my problems. Tell me about yourself. Somehow I get the feeling that I'm not the only person that feels lonely in the sea of people that comprise this ship. I am accustomed to being alone, metaphorically speaking. There are few who could be trusted in my universe. My arrival here was purely accidental, and the captain is currently searching for a planet to deposit me on. Aside from my children, I will be alone there, too. Why would you force yourself into self-imposed exile? Una asked. It's actually quite ironic. I have a home but none to share it with, and you have a family with no place to call home. Indeed, replied the Vulcan as she gazed at Una. I do not relish the thought of settling somewhere alien, but I have no place among these people. She wondered of Una's world and their success at remaining out of galactic politics. The struggle for power had been the catalyst for violence within her own universe. Savril was intrigued. How could Una's world be so successful at hiding themselves from those bent on conquest? Are your people always veiled in shadow? Yes. We are a culture that values our privacy. We use our technology to stay to ourselves, not to spy on the universe at large for some sort of advantage, Una said. My people have a biological ability to quickly be forgotten by most species. Our technology was developed to enhance our desires to not be discovered. I honestly don't recall a being outside my husband and his extended family that has ever pierced the veil of secrecy. Peace had always been an unobtainable dream for the Vulcan, and Una's world sounded to Savril like the ideal location for she and her children. Perhaps I'm immune. Savril had been a spy for the cooperative a Borg-like race that assimilated various peoples, integrating their DNA in order to acquire useful attributes. It was possible that in her universe, Una's planet fell to the cooperative as well. She thought of the Trill Doctor known as Ryla. Savril informed the captain that the DNA belonging to a race that reproduced by reanimating the dead made her resurrection possible. It was an ability that had given the cooperative an upper hand during the war with the Empire and the Alliance. Savril knew that this aptitude had been denied to her. Only a select few among the cooperative had this capability. Thanks to the assimilation of the Betazoid people, her telepathic abilities were enhanced beyond the ability of all Vulcans. It was a trait bestowed upon her by the cooperative to fulfill her duty as an embedded spy. She had other abilities as well, most of which she had yet to discover. I could verify your resistance on my ship. We isolated the gene that provides Eric with protection. I know that Marin has that defense now. 
I find having to constantly revisit conversations with people tedious at times, Una said, and offered her a smile again. It would be nice to have another adult to speak to and actually have them recall the conversation. Perhaps we might be able to help each other. Savril quirked a brow. She was surprised that Una would want to help her. That is generous of you, but there's something you want in exchange. She resisted the urge to scan the woman's thoughts. The Vulcan would give her the opportunity to verbalize her proposal. Una gave the woman a serious look. I need to know if I'm wasting my time trying to repair things with my husband. I would simply like to know if he loves her more. I've never had the chance to see how he reacts to her presence, and I would love to see and know how he responds to simply seeing her. It would help me decide what to do. Savril had decades worth of experience in espionage, determining the affiliations and turning others through various methods. But that was all behind her now. Una's scheme was far from nefarious, but Savril was hesitant to deceive the oblivious husband. May I consider your request? Una nodded in agreement. Yes, but I want you to know that this isn't a requirement for passage. Whatever you choose, that will not retract my offer to give you a place aboard my ship. In his quarters, Gul'dar looked at the silent Starfleet insignia in his hand. With Andrews off the station, what he was about to do should go undetected. He tapped his comm badge. Gul'dar to Andrews? The badge in front of him chirped but did not relay his message. He hadn't expected it to, as it hadn't on any of the previous five times he'd tried. In the same way, it didn't seem capable of transmitting anything at all. A comm badge that didn't handle audio was nothing more than a receiver, and the only point of a receiver is to receive things. Why anyone would want a comm badge with those capabilities, however, was a question he couldn't answer. At his office desk, Eric looked over the latest additions to the shuttle schematic that he had been considering. With the Aurora away, he needed to come up with a suitable replacement. His mind and fingers were also at work redesigning and repairing the orb that he had once given Dennis. It had been operational for days, but a recent burst of insight had given him a new idea on making it better. On the smooth, sleek desk rested a pad that still displayed the latest communication from the Starbase. His idea at a ship-wide game had somehow blossomed into full competition with other ships and even those aboard the Starbase considering competing. What once was a simple idea had mutated into a full-out contest that Eric had been more than happy to allow the Starbase personnel to host and run the event. With the ship under repairs and the staff reduced to a skeleton crew to manage the many shore leave requests, Eric had noticed the emptiness and absence that the lack of familiar faces caused. He also couldn't help but notice the missing people in his life. Eric rose from his desk with the spherical device in hand and headed for his quarters. It was more than time for Marin to have her protector back in her life. Joseph didn't like space stations. They were cold and grey. Stale air filled his lungs and he winced at the thought of having to work here. Being brought up in the sunny climate of Australia, he was used to the feel of the sun, the crisp fresh air of the woodland forest, the majestic sight of the blue mountains, but here, here was just grey. Still, he needed some provisions for his well-earned shore leave, and here was the only place he could obtain it. Searching around, he noticed a blur in the corner of his eye. What the hell? The blur vanished. He could have sworn he'd seen... a man. Damn style, eh? Seeing a small shop, he headed to it. 
and took out his list. On deck five sat the Arabella's gym. It was a tidy little area, making efficient use of limited space. Variable weight machines, isometric units, and calisthenics aids. Even a sparring ring configured for Ambo Jitsu. What it didn't have was a running track. For that, there were the holodecks, where you could conjure anything your little heart could desire. But those were down for maintenance. And so, Incendaria Shane barked, Make a hole! For about the thousandth time that day. His shift was hours over, and he had a long bit of downtime till the next one, so he decided to go for a run. Passing open maintenance tubes, access panels, and vaulting over an oblivious starbase engineer whose prone body stuck out across most of the hall as they worked unseen in some crawl space, Darius tried to get his mind past the last two sticking points. First, he had been ordered upon settling in to check in with the ship's counselor. Of course, after what the crew of the Arabella had been through, the ship's counselor was the only man more harried than the repair crew. That's why he hadn't done it yet. Really, that was why. Yep, not evading anything. No, sir. The other was almost more problematical. The rest of the security department had been a bit... quiet. Maybe it was Darius filling dead man's shoes... Maybe it was the fact that at 35, he was the oldest ensign any of them had probably ever seen. And maybe it was his file. The boss had mentioned it when he'd first checked in. Maybe it had made the rounds. And that was an unpleasant thought. He could just imagine what it sounded like to someone who didn't have to Collins' clearances to peer under some of the classified parts. Hi, fellas. I'm a trained killer who wound up here as a result of spacing a cargo bay full of... No! He barked the last thought. Crap, maybe you should see Margot anyway. As for the rest of the security staff, he had a plan. He had a cunning plan. Actually, it was his usual plan for a new posting. Invite everyone to an actual home-cooked meal. Of course, the dang holodecks being down would seriously cramp it. Wait a sec, were all the holodeck systems down? Hadn't he read in the specs that the Arabella's phaser range used holodeck technology? Yeah, but converting a phaser range into a hologrammatic kitchen seemed oddly sacrilegious somehow. He'd have to book time in one of the Starbase's suites instead. Speaking of, he'd eat ingredients. Alright, time to hit the showers and go shopping. Katan and Ryla headed towards the vast, open space dominating the core of the station's habitat zone. A series of large, terraced areas adorned the cavernous walls and were home to thousands of trees, flowers, and plant analogs from hundreds of worlds. The climate-controlled air was pregnant with the fragrance of blooming flowers, blended with the invigorating piney scent of robust trees and bushes. Organic walkways, many of which were suspended in the air, connected the islands of flora like some titanic, plant-festooned spider's web. Dozens of pedestrians made their way across the airborne walkways, some pausing to bask in the light and warmth cast by the massive cylindrical glow tube running vertically through the park area. Here and there, Catan spied more than a few couples ducking behind trees and shrubs to steal furtive kisses. Blushing subconsciously, he redirected his attention to the path ahead. As the pair followed the walkway to a quiet, idyllic-looking garden terrace, Ryla recounted her recent meeting with Eric James. They entered the shade of a towering tree while she described James' proposal of creating a new medical ward, with Ryla as its head. 
Catan looked down at the petite trill with a grin of vicarious pride. Thinking back on what he knew of the doctor's skill and insight, her promotion seemed like a logical decision. The head of a new medical division, eh? He asked. You're an incredibly intuitive physician. You were the key in unraveling the virus that ended the Tiberius. I can't think of anyone better suited for the task. I'm not sure how I feel about the new responsibility, replied the trill as she circled the large Manellan oak. Though the station remained at comfortable temperature, the oak's leaves had begun to transition from white to blue. It was obvious the tree had been fooled into believing it was winter on Janai. Ryla stared up at the canopy as her fingers absently traced the ribs of the trunk. On the one hand, I'm eager for the opportunity. On the other, I'm not certain that I'm ready to go back. She shrugged as she rounded the tree and stopped before Catan. Lieutenant Commander James aggravated me during the meeting. It was intentional. He said he was looking to elicit a spirited response. Before the Borg attack, I probably would have forced a smile and agreed with him. She gazed up at the Tyran and frowned. I seem to have regained my temper since I lost Dread. I'm going to have to watch that in the future. The sweet smell of chameleon roses wafted on the air. For a minute, Ryla felt as though they were planet-side. Then she heard the warble of a recorded bird emanating from a nearby gourd, and the illusion faded. Nice, she laughed. So, how did your meeting go? Catan chuckled. How did my meeting go? Well, it's funny that you mentioned being aggravated by Lieutenant Commander James. For a moment there, I almost felt as though he was speaking down to me. Catan leaned back against the gnarled tree trunk and turned to Ryla with a conspiratorial grin. Between you, me, and the artificial birds, I felt a fleeting urge to punch him in the face. But then I realized he was the acting first officer and second in command on the ship. Not to mention that some of the points he brought up made sense. And I had to remind myself that while an abundance of pride is an essential part of any Klingon officer's skill set, having too much of an ego could be detrimental in Starfleet. His grin took an impish cast. After all, it just wouldn't do to kill a superior officer over a perceived insult. True. That could be crossing some sort of line, laughed Ryla. He gazed contemplatively into the distance. Letting my pride get the best of me almost ended my career on several occasions in the past. I'd like to believe that I finally put that demon to rest. Ryla smiled. He certainly has a way with people. What irritating things did he say to you? I want to advance my career, and one day have a command of my own, he replied. But one can't grow without challenging oneself, and lately, I felt that serving as tactical officer wasn't enough of a challenge. The team I've developed is quite capable. The department can now practically run itself. So I approached him with a proposal for expanding my duties to include tactical and operations. His response hinted that I didn't appreciate the complexity of the op station, and that, and I quote, had to know, not guess, what my ship is capable of. Catan gave a growl of mild disdain, as though I was some cadet fresh from the academy. I've served as operations officer on some of the Empire's finest ships before I joined Starfleet. I've had more than just a passing familiarity with what the position entails. To make a long story short, I agreed that it would be best for the ship and myself if I focused on one department, at least for now. Assuming that the captain approves, I will be leaving tactical and assuming the role of chief operations officer. Congratulations, she said with a smile. 
I think the Arabella will benefit greatly from your transition to Ops. It doesn't seem like too long ago that you came into sickbay to show me the new pip on your collar. You'll have a ship of your own before you know it. Thanks, he answered. Catan was determined to see her encouraging words become a reality. He just hoped that it would be with Starfleet. What do you say we return to the Arabella, he asked. I need to continue my review of the ops department so that I can hit the ground running once the change becomes official. Ryla glanced up with a smile. Yes, I think it's time to turn in. By the way, Catan added, I hear there's some type of internship competition in the works, he grinned. It sounds right up my alley. Are you taking part in it? Competition, huh? She replied. I know nothing about it, but it sounds interesting. Galdar sat at his duty station in Shuttle Bay 4 and stared through the panoramic window at the array of craft in front of him. The Tellarite ship was still there and still looked out of place. Apparently it had been impounded on suspicion of smuggling something or other, but station security had finished with it two days before having found nothing. Now it was sitting here, disarmed, waiting to be claimed by whoever owned it. The consoles in front of him were empty and the wall-mounted stations on either side were similarly unmanned. There were a few work crews moving about on the hangar deck, but with the Arabella still being repaired, many had been seconded to that task. As a result, Galdar found his shuttle bay duty even more tedious a test than normal. For the last half hour, the ensign had been toying with the idea of taking a look at the Tellarite ship. Given the vessel's security status, it would probably be a stupid thing to do, but he was tempted anyway. He had never seen a ship quite like this and was interested in the sort of control surfaces it employed. He shook his head and dismissed the idea. Maybe he'd have a chance when the owner appeared. He scratched the back of his head, warm beneath the traditional Ferengi head garment he had adapted to a uniform black. The air was dry to his way of thinking and he was convinced that his skin suffered as a result. It wasn't that he liked the continual downpour that was Ferenginar, but a little more humidity in the air would surely do no harm, even to the equipment. A female voice crackled over the comm system, interrupting his reverie. Ops to Shuttle Bay 4. Sir, Ferengi responded. You have Lieutenant Andrews inbound and walking wounded from the incident near Argeolus. Please prepare to receive them. Aye, sir. Bay out. Galdar called as his hands moved to the panel. Out in the bay, lights strobed and klaxons sounded as the seal on the bay doors was broken by his command. The force field was in place, of course, but care was still required, hence the alarms. Visible through the widening gap between door and bulkhead was the nose of a Type 9 shuttle with the usual red and gold insignia. As the entrance opened fully, the shuttle passed through the gap, its deflector shield merging with the protective force field, preventing any atmospheric leakage. The whole area shimmered as it was disturbed by the ship's passage, but quickly settled into transparency again once the transit was complete. The bay door started to close as the ship settled to the deck and two wounded crewmen in starship duty uniforms emerged from the hatch. They quickly headed to the internal doors of the bay, presumably off to the medical wing. Lieutenant Andrews appeared shortly afterwards, paused to seal the craft behind him, then disappeared behind the Tellarite ship. Galdar watched the point where his friend would appear, thinking about the comm receiver still in his pocket, 
but Andrews didn't come into view. Galda sat straighter and glared at the Tellarite vessel. Was Nick taking the peek that Galda had denied himself? His hand jumped to his comm badge to remind Andrews about the ship's impounded status, but he restrained himself. Nick was his friend, but he was also his superior officer, and an ensign didn't get to be a lieutenant by telling other lieutenants what they couldn't couldn't do. He turned back to his station, muttering to himself, Ferengi are not responsible for the stupidity of other races. He recited the 69th rule of acquisition just as he'd learned it from his mother's knee, but then caught himself and stopped suddenly. He sighed almost theatrically at yet another sign of his Ferengi heritage refusing to release its hold on him. The rule wasn't the reason he hadn't contacted Andrews, was it? It was at least five minutes before Nick Andrews emerged from behind the ship and headed off into the bowels of the starbase, but Galva was focused elsewhere by then so completely failed to notice as the lieutenant glanced up into the control room before slipping away. Computer, lights, Lester ordered abruptly. Having spent a couple of hours laying in his bed trying to rest, the ensign decided to abandon all hope of sleep. The earlier conversation with his mother had left him a little disturbed. Lester had hoped that this assignment would give her less opportunity to interfere with his affairs. Breathing slowly, Lester began to organise and categorise his thoughts and emotions in his head. He had never been close to his mother. As a child, he spent most of his time with his father, who from an early age encouraged him to tinker with technology. He never questioned his relationship with his mother, he didn't know any different, and even the death of his father failed to rekindle it. Unfortunately, Julia Garris was a formidable force of a woman, an ambitious and determined individual that had put herself before her family many times, and it wasn't long before another important assignment became her priority. Even so, their relocation to Vulcan and his enrolment at the Vulcan Science Academy had given him a totally different perspective and opportunities he had never had before. She would check up on him regularly, but not really have much interest in his life unless his life decisions were not to her liking. His fondness for the Vulcan way of life was one. So what does she want now? Lester thought to himself. I am in control of my emotions, he whispered retrieving a beautifully decorated lamp from his bedside cabinet. Putting thoughts of his mother aside and lighting the lamp, Ensign Lester Garris began to meditate. DeCarlo checked his backpack and his list. Refreshments, writing pads, a pad complete with jazz music and stories from the early 21st century that amateurs wrote for entertainment. He'd found them in the history archives and downloaded them for free. Happy that he'd have everything, he headed for the station shuttle bay, ready to travel down and begin his shore leave. As he walked in, he spotted the enthusiastic Ferengi standing by the control panel, looking as if he was talking to himself. Using his security training, De Carlin slipped up to the ensign unnoticed, tapped Guldar on the shoulder and made him jump with a surprise. Who? What? Guldar span round, gazing almost wildly at the man in front of him. De Carlin laughed. Ah, oh, g'day, Guldar! Uh, feeling jumpy, I mate. Gordar relaxed, but was obviously surprised to see the lieutenant commander so close. Sorry, sir, I was concentrating. He paused, then smiled slyly. To be honest, with ears like these, I'm unused to people being able to creep up behind me. Easy there, Ensign. Here, take this. Gordar took the pad from Joseph and looked at it. He looked up at the officer, then returned his attention to the device. 
reading aloud as if to ensure he understood the content. Ensign Gildar, currently attached to Starbase 416, is ordered to report to the USS Arabella in the person of the acting ex-Earl Lieutenant Commander James as soon as his current duties permit. His transfer of requests, having been approved and accepted, is to take immediate effect. The medical with the ship's doctor is required as soon as convenient after arrival and all new crew members are requested to visit Councillor Margon for assessment and appraisal. Your liaison in this transfer will be Lieutenant Commander de Callan, with effect immediately upon his return from shore leave. The position of pilot is to be discussed with the acting XO on your arrival. Welcome to the crew, Captain N.J. Quinn, officer commanding the USS Arabella. Gordar locked up. His broad grin showed off all of his teeth, and the Carlin shielded his eyes. Oh, Struth, mate, you keep smiling like that, I'm going to have to issue sunglasses for all personnel. Now, well, I need a transport down to the planet. Have you got a ship handy? Ryla allowed Catan to walk her back to her quarters, and she effectively ended the evening with another handshake. Good night, they said in unison after an awkward hesitation. She laughed as his grin spread. Thank you for the adventurous dinner, she added. Ryla took a small step backwards. Her door opened and she paused in the entry. I had a nice time. As did I, he said, followed by another stretch of uncomfortable silence. I'll see you later then. Yes, he quickly replied. The trill said goodnight again, then took another step backwards and allowed the door to close between them. She smiled to herself as she stood there facing the door's soft gray surface. After a protracted moment, she heard the shuffle of Catan's boots as he turned and proceeded down the corridor. Despite the late hour, Ryla felt energized and sleep did not come easily. In the recent past, nightmares had stolen her rest. But this evening was different. Every time she closed her eyes, she saw him, felt the warmth of his hand on her own and the intensity of his lingering gaze. His stories echoed in her mind. Bits of conversation about Kilara, the outcasts, his mother, Lieutenant Commander James, and their careers. She tossed and turned for hours until she threw back the blankets in a sudden frustrated movement and headed for the central living space. Ryla stood there in the dark for a while, listening to the hum of the ship before turning her attention to the computer terminal. Maybe the throng of messages I've been ignoring will put me to sleep. With a flourish of key commands, she accessed the communiques and watched each and every message transmitted with a fresh perspective. Ryla was determined to answer them all, beginning with her mother and father's joining day letter. With a sheepish smile, their youngest daughter informed them that she wore the dress they sent the prior year to a Klingon restaurant, adding that the restaurant was dark, but pretty much mud-free. Her mother would be pleased at hearing that. Ryla closed her communique with a fleeting promise to send her a photo. Later. De Carlin sat in a small shuttle and looked around for his pilot. Tapping his fingers at a three-beat rhythm, he looked round and gave a yawn. After waiting for ten minutes, he stood up and stretched, and just as his bones cracked into place, he felt a warm sensation in his right-hand side, and then an agonising pain shoot through his ribcage. Crying out in pain, he grasped his side, and his first thoughts was, well, could this be the injuries he received from the last away mission? He had lied when he got up from the table to fight the Borg, and he hadn't been taking the hypospray remedy that Susan Kane had told him to take. 
Taking a small breath of the stale air, he noticed that a sudden iron taste had begun to fill his mouth, and as he spat out the saliva, it was obvious that some internal bleeding had come back to say an unwelcome hello. Staggering out of the shuttlecraft, he looked around the grey, cold, soulless bay for help, but no one was there. Guldar had left, and his expected pilot had not arrived. Cursing, the Callan tapped his comm badge. The Callan to station medical bay. Emergency help required in shuttle bay. The Callan's eyes began to blur, and he shook his head. Holding his stomach, he coughed again, and the black tar-like blood spilled out onto the floor. As he hit the floor, he managed to keep his eyes open, just as the same blurred figure he saw in the promenade bent down in front of him. With the children playing in his quarters, Eric sat alone in his office, the lights dimmed to the point of a faint glow above. For the last 20 minutes, he had attempted to meditate to regain his center. It was an attempt that ended in total failure. Both his head and his heart hurt from his wife's simple request. Her or the Arabella. His hands moved over the cool surface of the desk while his fingers played a heart-wrenching song on imaginary key. With every time change, he suffered some sort of loss or wore a uniform of flesh and memories that would have not been his choice. In this life... It was the uniform of husband. Only seconds after losing his daughter, he found himself in a new life. It was a life that should have made him happy. He found that he had been married for five years to a woman that he loved, but from his perspective, it was a love forever tied to the pain of losing his child. Being a man that held tight to the ideals of honor, he continued to be married and hoped that the love would replace the pain he was wrong. The man that he was supposed to be in this timeline was someone that his collective experiences could not allow him to be. Now he had a choice to make. Duty to the wife that he loved, but was not in love with, or duty to the family he made on the Arabella and the oaths that he had taken and had sworn to Starfleet in so many lives. Part of him had held held on to the hope that things would change again, that the universe would, for the first time, morph into something better than it was. Happily Ever After wasn't something he imagined ever finding, but recent events had changed that. The woman that he was supposed to be madly in love with, or the woman that always held his heart. What duty did honor dictate that he follow? Tears swelled up in his eyes and trickled down his face as his fingers played the melancholy tune that only he could hear. In his musings, he had not managed to make the life-altering decisions required of him, but he had found something that had been long missing in his life. Hope. 20 cc's of hydrazine. Begin cardio stimulation, called Dr. Burgess as he stepped around the man lying on the table within his infirmary. The patient lurched as the baton was pressed against his bare chest and a surge of energy coursed through his heart. Call the officer in charge of medical on the Arabella and tell them we have one of their crewmen in surgery. Yes, sir, came the crisp reply of his assistant. Ryla was in a dead run through the corridors of the Arabella, her blue lab coat flapping in the air that rushed around her. It was the first time she'd worn it since before the Borg attack, but that fact had yet to cross her mind. Ryla was focused on getting to the starbase as quickly as possible. She'd been awakened just minutes before by a call from 416. 
Joseph DeCollin was in surgery. Susan's boots pounded the floor just behind the assistant chief medical officer. Dr. Drett glanced over her shoulder. I'm right behind you, Ryla, shouted the nurse. As they tore through the passageways headed towards the turbo lift, the doctor let loose an exasperated breath. Why didn't I think to beam over? She slapped the comm badge pinned to her uniform. Dr. Drett to the bridge. Nurse Kane and I require emergency medical transport to the Starbase Infirmary. Lieutenant Commander DeCon has been injured. An acknowledgement of her request echoed through the beam as Ryla and Susan were transported mid-stride into the infirmary. They slid to a stop as their bodies materialized just inside the entry. Where is he? Susan snapped to the aides manning the floor. Dr. Peterson had been on shore leave for only a few hours but had found it hard to unwind. It was as if he had forgotten how to relax. It had been such a long time between vacations that it was a concept that had become foreign to him. Myella could see that Casey seemed somewhat preoccupied and asked if everything was okay. Casey responded, Yes, dear, it just seems so weird being on vacation as it's been such a long time since I had one. Myella laughed as she looked at her husband. <laughs> Don't worry, dear. I'm sure that after a few drinks and a couple of days on the beach, you'll feel just fine. You're probably right, Casey responded as they approached the promenade of Starbase 413. Casey and Myella stopped and looked down at the lower level and watched as the crowds of people scurried by, each going their perspective way, unaware of the other people or surroundings around them. The air was filled with the smells and aromas of various foods and spices from alien cultures waiting to be sampled by those who were curious or adventurous enough. After watching the crowds for a while, Casey and Myella ventured forward into the starbase until they became like one of those people they had watched moments before. They, too, became lost in the crowds of the starbase, ready to partake of the endless possibilities that this vacation had to offer them. Joseph DeCarlin had been stabilised by the time Viola and Susan were transported aboard the station. Dr Burgess's description of DeCarlin's condition puzzled the Assistant Chief Medical Officer. The eternal bleeding could not have been a result of the injuries he sustained on Telos. For the record, Viola examined indicated he had fully healed in the weeks following his surgery. He'd never mentioned any symptoms to me, offered Susan in a nervous whisper. She had been spending a lot of time with Joseph and would have recognised an illness had he been sick. Viola's gaze moved from the nurse to the patient. She stared down at his face, noting the welts that were rapidly forming on the surface of his skin. A quick tricorder scan failed to identify the cause of the dermal condition. Dr Burgess, have you run a toxiology test? Not yet, he replied in a gravelly bass. I think he's been poisoned. I'll need to use your lab to verify. Well, of course, but it could be any number of things, Dr Dredd. For all we know, he's just had a bad reaction to a Delvin puff pastry. Viola smirked at him. Okay, so internal bleeding isn't typical of an allergic reaction, but I'm not too sure why you would jump to these conclusions so quickly. The trill gestured to the red blotches on DeCarlin's face. I've experienced these before. One of Dret's former hosts died from ingesting a fruit that had a similar result. If I'm right, the test will confirm alkaloid poisoning. She heard Susan gasp and glanced to the nurse. So, like I said, it... May just be a severe allergic reaction, replied Burgess. Viola moved her concerned eyes from the nurse to the white-haired Terran, except that this fruit came from a planet known as Borgia. It only grows on Flaxia's third moon and is the Flaxian assassin's preferred method of termination. Dronarium, the woman who died, was the host who preceded me, 
Once I was joined to Dredd, I became obsessed in learning everything I could about the toxin to track down her murder. I want to make absolutely sure that I can rule this out. If we don't win the test first, he could die while we beat around the bush looking for simpler diagnosis. Susan's eyes began to well. Excuse me, Doctor, Viola said to Burgess, and then took Kane gently by the arm and led her into the next room. Are you okay? The nurse nodded slowly as she stared into the room where Joseph lay motionless. It's going to be alright, Susan, I promise, but I'm going to need your help. Do you think you can assist me? Nurse Kane nodded her head again and drew a shuddering breath. Viola smiled at the woman. Okay, we've got a lot of work to do. Luckily we have everything we need here to succeed, including a very experienced medical staff. Dr Burgess has him stabilised and we're going to make sure he stays that way. Now, if this test comes back positive, I'm going to need you to alert Lieutenant Dunn and Lieutenant Commander Katan. They may want to work with station security on this. Two men looked at each other and then back to the scene enfolding before them. Cloaked from view, they moved to the infirmary's entrance and waited for one of the staff members to leave. They watched as Susan returned to DeCallan's bedside and Ryla began her tests. The older of the two invisible men slowly shook his head and glanced at his companion who nodded in his own silent dispute. When Gordar returned to his duty station in Shuttle Bay 4, he seemed at once both distracted and amused. One other officer was at the main terminal in the control room, but the bay itself was still, sterile and quiet. No doubt normality would return once the bulk of the Arabella repairs were complete. He noticed that the shuttle he'd assigned to transport Lieutenant Commander de Callan was already back in the bay, looking like it had never moved. The flyer in him understood the drive that must have led the pilot to make the trip in such a short time as to be back already. But as duty flight ops watch officer, he'd have to make a note of it. He only hoped that Lieutenant Commander had appreciated such a swift journey. After his meeting with Chief Security de Callan, Gulder had been summoned to meet his own commanding officer. Commander Radwick had done nothing more than confirm the orders he'd already received, but he did it in such a way as to leave Gul'dar in his current bemused state. He didn't understand the Vulcan relationship with emotion at the best of times, but today had really confused him. It wasn't that Radwick was more emotional than usual, but something in his attitude had come across as almost... fatherly. Gul'dar blinked at the words struck him. Where did that come from? Radwick was nothing like his father. But the description fit, well, at least in terms that would be understood by a normal human family. Or so he'd read. Radvek had given him his orders, then sent him on his way with the hope he would find what he sought aboard the starship. A father's blessing, Gul'dan muttered. For a Vulcan, it appeared that the commander had hidden emotional depths only hinted at by his hardened exterior. Mentally shrugging, the ensign nodded to his colleague and moved to the wall terminal opposite the gantry door. He tapped in a series of commands, his fingers flowed smoothly across the interface, calling up the proposed schedules of the Avabella shuttle maintenance. Given that the transfer he hadn't formally applied for had already come through, he now had a double duty to ensure that these tasks were completed as quickly and as efficiently as possible. To that end, he would put a few of his less formal contacts on standby in case some difficulty to obtain bits and pieces were required. It was in areas such as this that the Ferengi knew he walked a fine line between duty and background. When he'd left home, he'd forsworn all aspects of Ferengi heritage, and that included his business skills and contacts, such as they were. He'd soon discovered, however, that such things still retained their value, even in the creditless Federation society. It had caused him some consternation, 
but eventually pragmatism had won over familiar anger and Gul'dan had permitted himself to use all of his skills for the benefit of his new career. It hadn't always been straightforward though. Many of the more exciting parts of his Starfleet record had stemmed from that single reluctant decision, but overall it had worked in his favour. Supply to a mobile platform such as a starship was something he hadn't tried before. It would be more tricky to manage than to a static starbase, but he was sure something could be arranged. From what he understood, similar practices had been employed by current serving officers, both human and Ferengi, during and after the Dominion War. He'd heard that even Commander LaForge of the Enterprise had dabbled with the use of a Ferengi supply lines in the somewhat lean times between the war and the fall of the Romulan Senate. Besides, he needed to maintain his grub supply. Obtaining other material at the same time would add little to the difficulty involved. He walked in between people unnoticed. No one could see him, no one could hear or smell him. He was invisible to everyone except, it appears, Joseph de Carlin. Standing in the middle of the promenade, he scanned the individuals. At the far end of the busy centre, he concentrated on a young ensign, talking to an old man. The ensign shook his head and walked away from the old man, who suddenly burst out laughing and then disappeared. This didn't shock him. In fact, he had expected the incident. Pressing some buttons on the paddle on his wrist, he too left the station, unnoticed. A brief stopover at the officer's mess revealed the cook was willing to lend Darius the use of his kitchen in exchange for an invite and samples to scan into the ship's replicators. Darius agreed to both conditions gladly and went over to the starbase in search of supplies. The first few food vendors he came across had pretty much standard fare, mostly spices and such too complex to replicate effectively. A few fresh fruits and vegetables and some things he devoutly hoped were vegetables. <laughs> then he found a small, out-of-the-way storefront on a disused corner of the shopping promenade. The sign glared something in Klingon, but Darius couldn't read the language. Stepping closer, he realized he didn't have to. It was a butcher's shop. A real, honest to butcher shop. It was amazing how many people in the Federation still ate actual meat. Most folks were content with getting their food from the replicator, which of course wasn't real meat, just a construct. Most of those who, like Darius, shunned the things, ate a vegetarian diet. Real meat, though, was still culturally important to many people. And nobody did real meat like Klingons. Grinning to himself, Darius stepped inside and instantly revised his menu. He walked out 15 minutes later with the same smile, a mediumish small slab of choice roast, a few specific marinating ingredients, and a black eye. Well, hey, he'd, he'd let the shopkeeper throw the first punch. It wasn't a fight. It was just earning the right to shop there. He returned to the first place he'd stopped at and added some bean jelly of a type he'd used before, but could never remember the origin of it was remarkably similar in concept to tofu from Earth, but the texture was significantly different. When added to the Klingon marinade and let to steep for a few hours, it would taste and behave almost exactly like genuine beef. That way, everybody was covered. So, ticking it all off mentally, he had his roast beef, or at least an analog to it, potatoes for baking, and fresh greens for a salad. He also had a very, very thin wallet. Oh well, it was worth it. 
Returning to the Arabella, Darius stopped the goodies off at the mess for storage. He still hadn't taken time to rig a refrigerator in his quarters yet. Job's done in barely six hours to his next shift. Sack time, he thought. But first, he tapped his combat. Shane to security station. A very harried voice came back. Go ahead, Ensign. Darius didn't recognize the person on the other end, but the tone set off alarm bells. I called on other business, he began, but what's the situation there? An exasperated snort greeted his. You don't know? The Callan is down. They think he's poisoned on the station or something. Docs are with him now. What? He reversed course and looped easily back towards the department office on deck 14. Shift was early. He could sleep when he was dead. Ryla pitched an uneasy gaze to Dr. Burgess. It's positive. The trill then turned her eyes to the infirmary floor. Through the transparent aluminum, she could see Susan Kane sitting beside an unconscious Joseph DeCollin. Bill Burgess grumbled something foul under his breath and folded his arms across his barrel chest. Poisoned. <sighs> nice catch, Doctor. I want to move him to the Arabella as soon as possible. I'm sure security will feel more comfortable having him aboard. It'll be easier to protect him there, said Ryla. She had a million things rolling through her head at that moment, but the thoughts that surfaced more frequently were who and why. Protocol demanded a report to the senior staff. Ryla would do that herself, opting to leave Susan at Joseph's bedside. There was no need for further medical intervention on Dr. Peterson's behalf. The station doctor stabilized to Colin. Sending the report was simply a formality. Now it was just a matter of filtering the poison from Joseph's blood. A task the trill would begin shortly. He should be fine, as long as security can keep him safe. She drew a breath and looked up at the towering station physician. May I use your computer terminal to send my report? Bill gestured to his desk. Be my guest. An eddy of shimmering particles coalesced to form three individuals within the ICU of sickbay. Ryla and Susan had materialized beside the bed that now held DeCollin. They were back aboard the Arabella. Nurse Binby approached the doctor with a greeting and presented her with a pad. At a glance, the medical information contained on the device answered all of Ryla's questions about the woman seated on a biobed within the main ward. This was not Commander Savril. He's going to be fine, Susan, she said to Nurse Kane as she left the recovering chief of security to introduce herself to the stranger with a familiar face. Hello, I'm Dr. Dredd. The more distracted Ryla became with work, the more frequent the symbiote's name was subconsciously employed. She placed her medkit beside the woman and removed the tricorder as her patient gave her name. You know, you're the mirror image of Commander Savril, said Ryla. Weary of hearing of her similarities to the first officer, the Vulcan simply stared at the petite doctor. I'm sorry, I bet you've heard that quite a bit. With a slight movement, the woman inclined her head in confirmation. The tricorder soon whirred to life as Ryla opened it to evaluate her condition. After a moment, she determined Savril was in the very early stages of labor. Today's the day, she said with a smile as kind as the summers of her homeworld. She closed the med kit and placed it on a nearby table. Why don't you lay back and rest for a while? The real labor won't begin for an hour or so. I want you to be prepared for the work ahead she said as she gently guided Savril back onto the table. Ryla scanned the woman lying on the bio bed before her. Relax, breathe, Savril tried to comply. There you go, good. The doors to sickbay opened behind them, but Ryla remained focused on the scanner and her patient. Do you want me to give you something for the pain? 
The Vulcan groaned as an acute twinge seized her. She gave Ryla a curt nod and drew another sharp breath. Nurse uh, Banby prepared a hypo and administered the drug to Savril. She sighed as she rolled her head to look at the man who had been silently watching the ordeal. Ryla glanced up and acknowledged Lieutenant Commander James. Eric's eyes blinked rapidly. Seeing the woman who wore Savril's face in labor had taken him back to that time so long ago. Sir? A familiar voice pulled him back from a similar event in in his past. Lieutenant Commander James whispered in low voices, as if his words could disturb the patient. I'm fine, Doctor. I had come to check on Mr. DeCallan and perhaps discuss the clinic. But I see that you have your hands full. How's she doing? Ryla looked over her shoulder at Savril as she stepped towards the acting first officer. She gestured to a quieter area of sickbay and led Eric away from her patient. I think she's in for a difficult delivery. I'm going to let her get as much rest as she can now before the real work begins. Lieutenant Commander DeCallan, on the other hand, is past the worst of his ordeal and is resting soundly in ICU. That's good to hear. I received your report and security is investigating now. You may be asked a few questions regarding the poison, but other than that, they should stay out of your hair. As for the clinic, we've selected two possible locations, Eric said and handed the pad to Ryla, sparing a glance back at the pained Vulcan. One is on Deck 9 and the other on Deck 3, with the Deck 9 location being the larger of the two. How would you like to get it set up? Ryla took the pad and studied the floor plan briefly. Glancing up, she noticed him watching the pregnant woman on the opposite side of the room. She looks a lot like Commander, doesn't she? I had a similar reaction when I met her this morning. Eric nodded softly. It's hard to see that and not recall a very similar experience. I had to teach myself how to help with the gestation and delivery of a Vulcan with nothing but a database and the converted parts of a shuttle we were in. The good part is that I've seen enough alternate versions of people to reduce my confusion. Still, it's hard not to be concerned when she reminds me of my daughter's mother. Lieutenant Commander James took a slow breath and forced his attention on the face of the Trill Doctor. Floor plans. You wanted to help come up with the layout, right? Ryla's curiosity was picked by his mention of converting parts of a shuttle to deliver a Vulcan child, but his abrupt change of subject told her that the moment for questions had passed. Yes, can I take a look at it and get back to you in a couple of days? The Vulcan watched the two interacting. Though she could not hear their conversation, she could read their thoughts. Flashes of imagery passed before her mind's eye. A woman in labor on a remote moon, with no one but this man to help her. This must be Una's husband, she thought. She resisted the urge to scan him telepathically, opting to speak to him instead. Una has told me about you, she said from across the room. Eric blinked several times and nodded absently to Ryla while turning his attention to the other Savril. You know Una? How did she know his wife? Better yet, how did she remember her? The shock on his face was obvious. Still staring at the Vulcan, Eric allowed his conversation with Ryla to completely falter. Ah, I'm sorry, Doctor. I lost my train of thought for a moment. Take whatever time you need. The Trill's brow rose slightly at his reaction to her patient. I'll, uh, just take this into my office. Savril rolled onto her side to alleviate the discomfort she felt and closed her eyes. 
Yes, I remember her. She was quite persistent with her questions and at first rather annoying, but she was kind enough to help me to my quarters, and after further conversation, Una invited me to her world. The Vulcan opened her eyes to see Eric was now standing near her. She is a kind woman. I don't know anyone as generous. She is a very kind woman, are as her people. Your wife is also an unhappy woman, she replied. While kindness was a rarity in my universe, sadness was not. Eric sat on the stool next to Savril. I'm quite sure that I'm responsible for her unhappiness, but I'm glad that you both met someone to talk to. I was planning on visiting to welcome you to the ship, but I did not wish to disturb your recovery. Half Vulcan pregnancies can be complicated even without the wound that you suffered. I'm surprised to see how far along you are. Is that a result of the cooperative or something else? The predominant theory is that the rift is the culprit. She fell silent a moment, concentrating on breathing until the pain had passed. I'm only six weeks along, yet the doctor assures me my children are fully developed. She paused to study his strange expression. Unlike the rapid pregnancy of the woman before him, his daughter's gestation was longer than the Vulcan average. While their isolation was difficult, it had also allowed he and Savril to explore and accept their relationship and the complications that it would cause if revealed to her family. Helping to deliver Ariel was one of the greatest joys of his life, just as losing her was one of the worst. The timeline shifted, and in the blink of an eye, all that he had was gone, and he was in a new life where he'd been married almost half a decade. With an effort... Eric broke himself from the past. I'm sorry. Seeing you like this brings a lot of memories for me. Have you decided on names? Savril ignored his question. I've seen your thoughts. He straightened at her words. Do not concern yourself. I have no intention of sharing them with Una. You will tell her yourself because you are an honest man. Eric offered a sad smile. How does one go about doing that, given the situation? I don't want to hurt her, and the truth, in this case, would do just that. I thought that time and distance would give us perspective, but it hasn't. She deserves better than what I am. What you are is a protector. (laughs) She winced as a pang gripped her. The truth will hurt her, yes, but your half-truth is like a sea devoid of a shoreline a knot of pain that your presence cannot unbind. I know what a lie can do if left to fester. Learning the truth allowed me to move on. Eric nodded slowly. I think that you're right, but we should hold this conversation until you're feeling better. I'll take your advice and speak with her, but I'm not sure that the truth is as liberating as most people believe. She does need to know the truth. She deserves that much. This is Kenny. Hailing frequencies closed. Hi, I'm Rick Moyer, and I want to tell you about my brand new podcast. It's called Take Him With You. Every week I talk about what's going on in my geeky little world of television, music, and in my faith. My hope is that in a world that can sometimes be really depressing, for at least a few moments you can be encouraged and smile a bit. So come check it out. www.takehimwithyou.com the weekly podcast that's spiritual, not religious. I'd love to have you listen. Thanks.
Battlestar is on hiatus. I didn't know that they were going to do this. Bye bye. I, did. I didn't know it was going to be, what, six months? That's but, ridiculous. Yeah, I knew it was going to be a very long time. Ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I guess they have to do what they have to do, but it's still not fair. I want Battlestar now. So have they made the episodes? They just haven't put they them made on them air? All. So everything's ready. Yes. They're just doing this to us just for fun, for giggles. But it's kind of like savoring your ice cream instead of polishing it off and getting care. brain freeze. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I understand your metaphor, but I still don't care. <laughs> You're the brain freeze person. Yeah, I just, I just dive right in. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Greetings, Guildies. I'm Kenny. And I'm Jenny. And we're the host of a brand new podcast, Knights of the Guild, the official fan podcast of the web series The Guild. Each month, we'll bring you the latest news about the Guild cast, including what projects they're working on and what conventions they'll be attending. Also, we'll be updating you on the current season, be it Season 2, which is currently airing on MSN Video, or Season 3, which is in the early pre-production stage. We'll talk about some behind-the-scenes fun of Season 2, as well as having cast, crew, and fan interviews. So head over to iTunes and subscribe to Knights of the Guild. Or go to our website for a direct download at knightsoftheguild.podbean.com. Zaboo! Zaboo!